is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. News for the Soul is now in its 25th year of broadcasting. Tune in live or visit the archives at newsforthesoul.com. That's newsforthesoul.com. Next on News for the Soul, Light Body Healing with Dr. Lara. Dr. Lara is a functional medicine health coach, an advanced practice clinical pharmacist specialist, master intuitive healer and channel, and international teacher and speaker on a mission to empower you to take an active role in your healing journey to achieve holistic health mastery of the mind, body and spirit. Dr. Lara combines energy medicine with functional medicine to facilitate healing at the root level. Call in now to speak with Dr. Lara today. 646-595-4274 646-595-4274 Please welcome Dr. Lara back to News for the Soul. Hello and welcome everyone to the latest episode of Light Body Radio. I am your host, Dr. Lara May, and today I am super excited to have with me Edith Forbes. She is the author of Tracking a Shadow, My Lived Experiment with MS, a memoir about the self-designed experiment that led her to identify a unique approach to the disease. She has also written four novels published by Seal Press in Seattle. She began her career in computer programming, but abandoned it for less logical purposes, including farming, house renovation, and writing. In addition to novels and her memoir, she has penned essays, poetry, screenplays, and a cookbook. She holds a degree in English from Stanford and was raised on a ranch in Wyoming and currently lives on a small farm in Vermont. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So I, let's just get started by um, telling us a little bit about your background. So in the book, you talk extensively about how you grew up on a dairy farm and then, um, and then also obviously how that you found out that you had MS. So uh, just tell us about those things. About the background? Well, I mean, I actually grew up on a, on a, I grew up on a ranch in Wyoming. It was actually beef, there was cattle, but it was beef cattle. We did have some dairy cows, but they were, they were for our home use. And that may be why, since I talk about the cream separator in my book, you know, um, we did, we did have a small dairy, but it wasn't what we did commercially. Um, and then, you know, many things happened in life. Um, the computer programming, the writing, various things. Um, the, the, and I ended up living on a small farm in Vermont where I had a few beef cows. Well, I had, did have a dairy cow for a while. Um, and then um, as far as the what led to this book, which was a kind of a change of direction for me. I mean, it wasn't something I set out intending to write. But um, in, in 1993, I started having some weird neurological symptoms. And... Um, I went to my family doctor, who was someone I had a high regard for, and um, and he was a very forthright fellow. And he said, "Well, there's there's three things this might be. It could be it could be a brain tumor, it could be tertiary syphilis of all things, or it could be multiple sclerosis, or it could be nothing at all." Because and um, 
And two of those things got ruled out pretty quickly. The brain tumor, the symptoms went away, so we knew it wasn't that. And the tertiary syphilis, there were there were no other symptoms, and I was in a monogamous relationship and so on. Um, so that's when I found out I might have MS, but I also might have nothing at all because MS, um, in case people, it's it comes and goes early on. A lot mm-hmm. it kind of appears and disappears, and the symptoms can be wildly variable from one person to another. So at first I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, I'm probably, this is just probably some passing thing. And I was busy on the farm and I, my first novel had just been published. So I was extremely excited about that and, um, and really not thinking very much about, and I didn't know very much about MS. So I went and read a little bit just to know what he was talking about. And that's when I found out it's a, it's an autoimmune disease that attacks your nervous system. It, basically chews away the insulation on your nerves in your central nervous system. And, and because it can damage your nerves anywhere in the system, it can cause all manner of different symptoms um, from blindness to spasticity to, you know, buzzing in the nerves to um, loss of balance and um, a lot and a lot of fatigue and people end up you know, the famous cases, I mean, the case I knew about at that period of time was Jacqueline Dupre, who was, you know, the famous cellist who, who got the disease and first couldn't play the cello and then died quite young. Um, so I knew about the bad cases. And I also knew that there were cases that were very mild that people would live with it their whole life and not have big problems. Um, but I really wasn't thinking about it at that stage because I didn't really think it was what I had. And then about a year and a half later, was when the symptoms came back. I got a lot more tests and, you know, and that's when I kind of got, got serious about it and started trying to learn about the disease and what I might do because there were no treatments. I mean, that was the other reason it really didn't matter what to know whether I had MS at that stage because there was nothing to do about it anyway. Even if we did have it, it they didn't, they had no, nothing to offer as far as mm-hmm. like, trying to keep it from getting worse. So, um, so yeah. Uh, and I'll just interject here a little bit, and uh, because in Western medicine, a, a lot of times the question is, well, will this change how we treat? And if it won't change how we treat, then it's oftentimes considered unnecessary or extemporaneous or, you know, not necessarily that quote unquote relevant. And unfortunately, that's just the Western medicine approach. Instead of investigating, uh, the root or the cause or all these things, well, if it won't change how we treat, then why does it matter is sort of the the approach to a lot of things uh, yeah. that Western medicine treats or doesn't, depending on how you look at it. Well, and also <laughs> their definition of treatment tends to be something they can give you. I mean, like right. something they can give you as opposed to, uh, well, you, you, you know, I, uh, yeah how you might change your lifestyle, what might be causing this that you could eliminate from your environment, you know, any number of things that sort of don't, aren't kind of in their wheelhouse, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I call it a Band-Aid approach. It's not an actual, a, a real treatment. It's just a, usually a symptomatic or short term, um, you know, like let's just cover it up and see, hope, hope it gets better or hope it doesn't get worse really. So. Well, it depends. It depends a lot on what condition you're talking about there. Because absolutely, absolutely. Okay, some some diseases they have dynamite treatment for. I mean, if you have <laughs> infection, you want to get down there and get your antibiotics. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so 
it depends what, but then other diseases, I mean, that's the thing. Multiple sclerosis is in the category of something where they're learning a lot more about it now. But at that time, they they understood the sort of basic mechanism, but they really didn't know. They had no idea what caused it. They still have no idea what causes it. Um, and they didn't really know how to interrupt the basic mechanism. So they didn't have good, even good symptomatic treatments at that point, except they would give you steroids during the flare-up to try to... Mm-hmm down on inflammation but as far as anything that would reduce the likelihood that you had a flare-up they had nothing um and so that's when you know i kind of went off on my well i was just like i'm not going to sit here and sit still and wait and see whether this disease is going to you know whether i'm going to be one of the people who has a bad case or, mm-hmm. or one of the lucky people who doesn't have too bad a case um that's when i went off and and did a tremendous amount of research at, I mean, medical, you know, at the medical library, I wasn't off in, in some, you know, anywhere else, particularly I was at the, but there was, there was in fact a lot of information in certain arenas about the disease, like the epidemiology of it had been studied a lot because they were so, because they didn't, because they were so mystified by it. It was so variable and so unpredictable. And mm-hmm. so that kind of information, there was a lot of, yeah, when you talk about your deep dive into the research, it's interesting to me that um, where you found the correlations and mm-hmm. internationally. So, like when we say deep dive, you were doing international literature searches essentially um, to find out what was going on in other countries, where was this disease popping up there, and and maybe what were some similarities that you could piece together, right? Um, yeah, I mean, at that it, back in that era, in 1995, the internet wasn't nearly as sophisticated as now, right. so I wasn't able to do the kind of searches I did later. But but I was able to find a lot of stuff that was written about um, where the disease was common, what countries had a lot of it, you know, what correlations there might be with climate or with, you know, whatever else, um, because it's. Apparently, it's it's rare in the tropics and common in temperate climates. So that was one, you know, one thing they were um, on the hunt about. And what happened is I looked at the data and I thought, this looks an awful lot like the distribution of dairy cattle, you know, because I my background was in agriculture. So I was kind of like, this was what I knew about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then I did more. That's where... Um, I have a relative who was a cancer researcher at NIH, and he did at that point have more access to medical journal articles than I did. You know, um, now there's a lot more stuff available, but in, back then, the, a lay person he could get, find a lot more stuff than I could, and that's when he found me an actual study that said yes, there does appear to be correlation, at least at, you know at the population level, between milk and and multiple sclerosis. That's oh. so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you decide to do? Once you, like, I guess, like, kind of at least, like, found this one piece of the, of possibly milk being some sort of precipitating factor or correlation, where did you go from there? Or what? how did you implement that into your life? Oh, well, that, that was the kind of thing that's really easy for an individual person to do that is harder for a medical person to do because they're, they always <laughs> like they have to have study, you know, all sorts of like documentation and clinical trials to back them up before they can recommend something. And, 
And I was one person with no one to harm but myself. So I could just say, I'm just going to stop drinking any milk. I mean, if, if there's a chance that, that drinking milk increases your likelihood of getting MS, it may also increase the severity of MS if you get do get it. And so I literally, I just completely stopped consuming any milk products whatsoever, including, I mean, I was even really careful. Well, because I didn't, you know, because it hadn't been studied. I mean, the medical community was not talking about this at all. There was this one study that someone had done, but, but in the larger literature, there was, this was not even being, you know, it wasn't, right. even, there certainly wasn't yeah. something a patient could do. Um, so I stopped doing any milk, including like I would read labels and, and try to avoid, I mean, I didn't need it, you know, any baked goods or anything that even had milk in it. I was avoiding even that because since I didn't know what, if there was some factor in milk, I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to completely eliminate all of it and see, you know, if it helps. Um, and I did start taking some calcium because I was a little bit worried that cutting milk out of my diet is it's a big source of calcium in most people, in a lot of people's diets. And I wanted to be sure I was, you know, not giving myself a deficiency in a different area. So I start, I didn't take a lot of calcium, but I just took, you know, like kind of a part, a part dose or whatever, you know, whatever the recommended daily run. I took like a third of it or a half of it or something. Um, but that was the only other, the only other thing I really did in conjunction with the milk was just trying to make sure I didn't miss out on some nutrients from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, just for reference out there, like now, especially in the functional medicine world, we have the Walls Protocol, which Terry Walls, a uh, physician, mm-hmm. um, has healed herself from MS also, um, as, as much as you can be. But, you know, like functioning, reverse the, pro- the progress of it. Mm-hmm. And But that didn't, she didn't really publish any of that until like 2007. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, you were, you know, on this path on this um, like research voyage and trying to just figure out what you could do that would benefit you to the maximum and prevent this progression, you know, pretty much like 10 years or more before that even, you know, was available to, and even in 2007, I would say it wasn't available to the mass public. Like her mm-hmm. book is now, but, and, mm-hmm. and probably pretty, I think it's pretty well known. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that must have been super challenging for you. Did you feel like you were supported during that journey or? Um... Um, well, it depends who you're talking about. I mean, my friends and family all were very supportive and very helpful. Um, and um, and I kind of, you know, I kind of have a scientific curiosity. I mean, I, you know, so for me, I sort of felt like I was making an experiment like here. I went, you know, I almost felt like I was specifically trying to do an experiment. I mean, I didn't have a, like a big study group to do it on, but I had one person to do it on. So I was interested in what was going to happen. And that yeah. was curious. So that helped me as far as like, you know, because I wasn't really, I love milk. I mean, I love everything ever made from milk. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I wanted to give this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, like cheese, on, melted cheddar cheese on crackers, like that's to die for. So so I, you know, I needed some things to kind of bolster me to say, let's, you know, just stick with it. Um, and 
partly I was, I have to say, I was really scared about the MS. I mean, you know, because it, it, when it's bad, it's really bad. Sure, because, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when it when it's, you know, if you're one of the people, you know, a lot of people really don't have very severe problems from it. But when you do get the severe problems, it's really bad. So, so I was, and I was a very active, you know, I run and I ski and, uh, you know, I was very active. So the thought of losing that was really big for me. So I was motivated. Um, and the other good thing that happened is that in addition to just the, you know, my fear of MS, um, after I went off milk, a couple of other things in, in my health changed positively. One of, one of which was my cholesterol dropped quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, it would have been normal and then it was like really low, um, which for most Americans would be a good thing. And, um, and also, I had respiratory allergies. I had horrible hay fever working on the farm sometimes, and and that got better after I went off milk. Yeah. So, so that really helped keep me going on it. That you know, even if it wasn't doing anything for the MS, it was sort of doing good things for me otherwise. Um, you know, and that early on when I didn't know what to do about the MS, it, that was very helpful. Yeah, and I would actually argue that you pro- it probably did help you. Because, you know, anytime we can eliminate a level of underlying inflammation, it's mm-hmm. going to help our body and whatever else it's struggling to sort of re-equilibrate and bring back the homeostasis, right? Because yeah. ideally, our body wants to be in a, in a state of homeostasis. Mm-hmm. It wants to be in balance. That's its natural state. And we are really fantastic as human beings at throwing our body out of whack. <laughs> well. Whether we, I mean, most of us definitely don't mean to, um, but, and then it's like this journey of like figuring out how to come back. And I eliminated dairy in my own life when I was going through my own self-discovery of how to heal my IBS. And I also had all these other symptoms that I didn't think were related. But then once I got rid of the dairy and the gluten and some of these other things, but the dairy was really the big one. Mm-hmm. Um my allergies also went away. Uh, my migraines decreased in severity and frequency. I had chronic acne. My skin cleared up. I mean, just so oh. many things. Yeah, so yeah. many things that yeah. I never even realized were connected to the dairy because mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that as a small child, you're raised on cow's milk. We're yeah. you know, taught from big food and commercial industry that cow's milk is so good for you and all of these things. So um, how fast did, did you notice a change in your symptoms uh, from when you really, um, like, really decided to, like, cut it out and just leave it behind? Are you talking about the MS or the, or the other things? The, All uh, of it. Um, with the allergies, you know, it was sort of a gradual, they sort of gradually got better and better, you know. So I noticed mm-hmm. something immediately, and then over time they got better and better, and, you know, partly, you know, some of that could be age because some allergies get less as you get older, but I, it was more than just could be explained by age. Um, I didn't age that fast. And um, the, as far as the MS, the thing was, I was my, I was still in the relapsing remitting phase of, of MS. At that, you know, I'd only had two, I had two episodes in 93 and, ni- and late 1993 and early 1995 mm-hmm. off milk. And the only symptom I had after that was left after the first, that second episode was just a little tiny bit of numbness in, in like part of my left hand. So I really had essentially no symptoms. 
So there wasn't any, that was one of the reasons it was a little hard to know whether the milk was doing anything is because I, I didn't have any symptoms to go away. It was mm-hmm. a question whether it kept symptoms, you know, me from having another relapse where the symptoms mm-hmm. come just which is what the doctors would have said was going to happen. You know, I mean, later when, when I got my confirmed diagnosis, you know, I said, well, well, you know, back when there weren't any medications, what would you have told me about the disease? And they said, well, I've told you it will get worse. Great. Right. Like it's just the part of the progression. Like this is how it's yeah, going to be. That's, that's how the disease were. I mean, not, you know, and it varies. It's just hugely variable from one person to another. So they, the mm-hmm. doctors really can't tell you like how fast or whip in what way but they'll say it's highly likely that it's going to get worse in some fashion if you do nothing. Um, yeah, so so there wasn't anything to note. That's one of the reasons why I needed these other incentives. I mean, if I had had a bunch of symptoms that suddenly went away when I went off milk, then it would have been like clear cut that I should stay on it. But <laughs> um, but I, that, that wasn't the case. It was the case that I was um, just waiting to, you know i well the thing that became the benchmark is it had been it was a year and a half between those two flare ups that i had and i didn't have another flare up until 2004 so it went from being a year and a half between the flare ups to being 9 years and also that flare up in 2004 coincided with one of the almost the only times when i ate something that might have had milk in it Mm. case of sort of politeness and emotional context that I just wasn't ready to say oh does this have milk in it you know I just mm. ate what was put in front of me you know and um and then like a few days later the symptoms came back so so I have to say after that experience I was like I got really absolute about the milk I just you know I will eat nothing rather than eat you know eat something that has milk I mean if I have to just skip a meal fine um and I haven't had a I haven't had a flare up since two thousand four. So, um, you know, now I'm pretty dedicated. Yeah. I mean, now it's now it's like, <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. 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 I don't. Yeah. For me, I don't miss miss it at all. Um, but I think also too, like when we, you know, you're one of those people that you have a direct correlation. Like when you know if you have it, then this happens. Mm-hmm. then, you know, and that's unpleasant mm-hmm. or, and, or it leads to something that can be catastrophic, mm-hmm. then it makes it a lot easier to just be like, nah, I'm good. I don't need it anymore. You know, my body is obviously not benefiting from it in any way. Um, so I'm curious. So have you um, tried like sheep or goat products? Because those animals don't have the same protein makeup as cows in their and the milk that they produce? You know, until somebody does, see, my goal, you know, my goal in life is I'm hoping somebody will do more research in this area. I mean, real mm-hmm. research, because until I know for sure what it is in the milk that is the problem, if it is a problem, I'm just like across, the, I don't, well, for one thing, I don't, I just don't touch any milk, I mean, from mm-hmm. any, from any animal. And it's partly also, um, Mammal, you know, we're mammals, and so the milk of another mammal, milk is just very biologically active substance. It's full of hormones. It's full of antibodies, you know, immunoglobulins. It's full of all sorts of stuff that is specifically designed to interact with our, you know, with, well, I mean, with the calf, but it's designed, it's designed to be active and to, you know, have lots of, you know, 
<laughs> so, to help a baby grow. <laughs> that could be true of six milk or not a, an adult. <laughs> yeah. So it could be true of two. I don't know. It, yeah. It, it, it's, and it's designed for their baby, not for us. <laughs> exactly. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, until they find out, if they find out what the issue is, you know, if they ever could pin down and say, oh, we finally know why it is. This is causing the problem. And they could say, and it's only true of cow's milk. I mean, because one of the things, you know, that I, when I was, when I decided to write this book, I went back and did a lot more research on what's going on now in, in you know, in conventional medicine, about what are they finding mm-hmm. out about the disease. And I found a lot of really, you know, I was really interested in what's going on now um, that, you know, there's, there was sort of more support for the idea that something about the diet is matters in MS. They were finding, you know, that study from Japan that was showing that people just had a whole different profile of gut flora, depending on whether or not they had a mess or not. It mm-hmm. sort of suggests that, you know, it might be to do with what you're eating. Um, and, you know, and then I got on the track of this virus that is, is in milk. I mean, that can be shed into milk by the animal that gave the milk um, that has the potential to be a source of, of a protein cross reaction. Right. Um, which I guess we're kind of now we're getting into the weeds. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> we're not afraid of weeds here. <laughs> the current theory about MS is that you know it, one of the theories is that it, it's a cross reaction between your immune system and and some some protein in something in your envi- in the environment, and mm-hmm. so you know and 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 viruses have always been at the top of the list of things they were looking at as potential sources of this cross reacting protein. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. Right. Well, especially because some virus families, there's so many different varieties of them mm-hmm. and strains that it's when it's hard to pin down when we're so prolifically exposed to some of them and, and um, in such a, I don't know, like, um, I don't know, ubiquitous isn't the right word, but um like especially depending on where we grew up, like you said, if like we like the environment that we grow up in, what we're exposed to, whether it's you know plants, animals, um, maybe like outside chemical factors too, mm-hmm. and and then how that interacts with our own system. Mm-hmm. Um, have you have you noticed any correlation between like levels of stress? for yourself as, you know, talking about like N as a power of one. (laughs) That is so interesting because, you know, that was one of the things, even in the early, even in the the literature I was reading back in 1995, you know, there was some speculation that stress might be a factor in flare-ups with with MS. And I have to say, I mean, I write about this in the book that um, for me personally, it appears stress does not cause relapses because I've had various things in my life in recent years that were extremely stressful. Um, I mean, and I didn't didn't have a flare up in response to them. The thing I do notice with um, the the flare up I had in 1995, it left slightly more pronounced numbness in my hands than than I'd had before. That was, but that's the only symptom I have is just a little bit of numbness in my hands, and I've never had fatigue. Um, and I do notice sometimes if I'm either really hot, I mean, in hot weather, or if I'm really stressed about something, I just notice the numbness more. Not that it's a flare-up. It's not that the, you know, that the disease has activated 
end is is causing a new problem. It's that the damage it left behind mm-hmm. is more noticeable when I'm stressed, you know. <laughs> so, and that right. means why people think, you know, thought stress was related to flare-ups. And, and, you know, and for other people it may be. I, I mean, people's systems are different. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so it could be that there's a reason why they thought it was a, you know, for some people maybe it is. Um, but it isn't. Right. I was kind of like, phew, that's a relief because it's bad enough to be stressed without them thinking, oh my God, this might trigger a relapse. <laughs> that's not right, like, and now you're a double stressed. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, um, tell us about why your mother had such a profound impact on you uh, through the process of you overcoming this disease process. Well, my mother was a remarkable woman. I mean, I um, I was born in 1954. Um, my fa- my father already had lung cancer when I was born. Oh wow! And, um, and he died in 1955, so I was a year old. And my mother, he left. You know, there. So I have six siblings. So there were seven of us, seven kids. The youngest being me, who was a year old. And this cattle ranch that we were living on in Wyoming. And he all and and he also had had this idea of trying to bring some new ideas to to agriculture to cattle production and and make it more um, efficient, if you like. I mean, make animals make better use of feed, basically. I mean, by um, anyway, he he had an idea that he was trying to use our ranch as a kind of an experiment to test, you know, with our cattle. He was going to try this out and see if it would work. And then if it worked, he could like try and tell other people about it. So I kind of grew up, I grew up with, with this mother who A, took on raising the ranch, running the ranch, raising the family. And also later, I mean, once she kind of got things stabilized in those two arenas, she took on trying to like work on this idea that my father had had. She was like dedicated to taking it out into the world and talking to people about it. Um, so she was a real, and it was not a popular idea in the in the beef industry at that point. It was it was um, it that's a very conservative group of people, and and they were you know, and she was a woman. Um, so, but she was just you know, she was a very determined person, and. And that was kind of my, and she was willing to thing that was definitely off the beaten path that was trying to, you know, bring new ideas, mm-hmm. try something new that might make things better. Um, yeah, so all of that, you know, when I was, I was the last kid in the house, so I got, I got even more of a dose of her than the rest of the family did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of them had kind of grown up and gone at some point, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, you know, that was that it gave me a lot of belief that you can do that kind of thing for one thing and that you need to think for yourself that you shouldn't just take what everybody thinks as being a given that you you know you need to think about it it's not to say they're wrong but but you just you want to think about it carefully before you you know just leap to assume that right what you know if the conventional wisdom is is true um yeah so that was I, I, it's hard to convey. I mean, I write about her a lot in the book because yeah, she was just a fascinating person. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I I think that's a great message, and especially it's one that I love to bring to my audience, which I was why I'm so happy that you're here today and that you wrote this book. 
is that regardless of what is happening in the dynamic of, of medicine, and I mean, you could even extrapolate this to other areas of life, you know, really, but it's, it's, to me, it's like, question everything, like, mm -hmm. seek, seek help, mm -hmm. and take advice, and but also do your own research and just ask yourself like does this resonate with me you know like if a doctor gives you a certain you know um treatment plan it's okay to say oh i that doesn't really resonate with me i'm going to get a second opinion or i'm going to find a different practitioner or or maybe you say yeah let's do that you know we'll work together as a team to to approach whatever the problem is and so um, I love that, and I love that it sounds like your mom was a pioneer in her own right. Oh, yeah, definitely. That, yeah. And, and bringing that message forward that, that, that life isn't always, you know, easy and hunky-dory, but that doesn't mean that we can't do hard things and still have a, a really fulfilled life mm -hmm. while, you know, navigating through some hard stuff in life. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, she was an inspiration in that way. I mean, for sure. And yeah, and she got interested in all sorts of actually, she got very interested in, in lots of alternative health thinking too later in life once she was no longer once my brothers took over running the rent, you know, took over the business. When she was older, she was kind of ready to be done with that. And, and she got very interested in, in certain alternative health practices and was, you know, and was encouraging people to try them. Yeah. You know? Cool. Um, so did you find any other food correlations throughout your research or even, you know, throughout experimenting with your own body um, through this process? Well, um, no, I mean, I didn't experiment with other foods. You know, this, this, I, the original decision about milk had been based very specifically on, you know, on the actual epidemiological apparent core you know potential correlation mm -hmm. and honestly you know this was where the you know having grown up in this sort of my our ranch was like a petri dish itself you know it's like i was living in an experiment my entire childhood so the the concept of of doing an experiment came very naturally and i was doing this experiment on myself about what happened with milk and i didn't want to do a whole lot of other things because then I wouldn't know which one had done that, you know, I wouldn't know whether it was the milk or whether it was something else. If I did five right. different things, how would I know which one was the one that actually did, you know, made a difference. And, and, you know, I hate to say that in an odd way was part of my motivation when, when the you know, when I, when I had the flare up in 2004, that's when I went back and they had the MRIs and said, yes, you definitely have MS. And here's the drug, you, should, you know, here are the two drugs that are available. And, you know, you can take whichever one works better for you. And I was like, you know, my flare-up interval was nine years. And these drugs, you know, they, they were, you know, they were going to reduce the flare-up. I mean, they were going to give you a little bit more time. I was thinking, I'm going to have to be on this drug for 10 years before I even know if it's helped me. And And also, I just felt like, if I start taking a drug, then my other experiment is, is out the window because I don't know whether anything good that happens in the future. I don't know if it's because it was the drug or because it was what I was doing with my diet. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't want to mess up my experiment. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm not going to, I I never took any MS drugs. I've never taken any MS drugs. And, and part of that was just, I felt like I was doing well enough that the side effects weren't worth it, you know, given, given how infrequently I was having flare ups. 
but part of it was just um I don't I want to find out. I I'm really curious about this milk thing and you know, and if I start doing something else along with it, then I'll you know, it's like I've met Yeah. Up. Yeah, I and I I'll just, you know, add since I'm glad you said that too that that it wasn't worth risking the side effects of the drug for, relative to where yeah, for you, for where you were like at your baseline, also that like going through a flare, you mm-hmm. know, like that that equation just didn't add up for you. And mm-hmm. I think that's also something going back to sort of the the topic of like the sovereignty and the questioning everything, is that I really encourage all the listeners of this show to really have those discussions with your practitioner, with your doctor, whoever it is out there that's encouraging you to take a medication or even a supplement, you know, ask, what are the risks, are the benefits, what are the side effects, you know, to figure out again, you know, like, what is the ratio between the benefit and the risk, because everything in life is always a risk versus benefit equation, if we, if we really get down to the nitty gritty. And so, yes, keep, yeah, Keep making those hard decisions and and just being you know real and truthful with yourself and and sort of there's an element I think of bravery in there too because I think a lot of us are sort of um, especially when we're scared with a life threatening diagnosis and then there's this physician that's in a place of power because mm-hmm. we tend to put physicians up on a pedestal. And then we sort of give our power away when we do that. And, and I'm of the opinion that it should be more of a, um, an egalitarian relationship of they're here to help us and to guide us, but they shouldn't necessarily like be given the power to make decisions for us or to yeah. maybe guilt us or shame us into doing something that we're not in alignment with. Well, and, and also just, it's really important to push your, I mean, my experience, I've been through other medical experiences that involved much more extended, not with me, but with close people close to me, where I was in extended, you know, interaction with the medical system. And it made me realize how much you can't, you can't just passively rely on them to take care of you, basically. (laughs) You have, you really have to ask questions. You really need to, well, you want to educate yourself as much as you can as a lay person to know what questions to ask mm-hmm. and, and I'll, and just be taking into account your own priorities and, and what you know about how your own system works. Um, and which, you know, they don't know you, you know, they know about the disease and they know about what treatments are available and on all of that. And they know a lot more about that than, than I would certainly. Sure. Um, but then there's the other dimension, you know, so it, it, I want it to be a back and forth of, like I bring what I know about myself and what I've learned from other experience and I want to have a conversation with them, you know, and I want to probe them for what everything they know, you know, it's like, I want to, I want to, you know, I want I want to rely on them for knowledge, but sort of relying on them for knowledge is not the same as relying on, on them for a decision. Right. Oh, that's such a good point. I love that you said that. Encyclopedia. I want to read it, you know, I want to pick your brain, but that doesn't mean I want you to like decide necessarily decide for me yes yes oh that's so powerful 
Absolutely. So before we start wrapping up, is there anything else that you feel like we haven't touched on or brought up that you really want to bring forward? I don't know. It's hard to know people, you know, so you can, I, mostly I want to, you, you can ask questions of what you want to know. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't have a specific agenda to, you know, as far, I mean, I, my sort of the single biggest goal I have is I would like to see more research. Well, two things. Mm-hmm. I would like to see more research. And I would like to see this information get to people who, you know, who might like to try it just because it's, it, it, can, it won't hurt you. That's the thing. I mean, that was the other reason I was perfectly felt free to try this is that it wasn't going to do me any harm to, right. to, to change my diet this way as long as I was careful about it. And I was already eating a very balanced, diverse diet. I mean, I eat tons of vegetables, tons of meat you know, not, you know, reasonable amount of grain. I mean, I ate everything basically. And then I, the only thing I cut out was milk. Um, so, you know, it's the kind of thing that somebody could try if they sort of want to, you know, and, and there's no incompatibility with doing a medication while you're doing, you know, you can, if you're taking it and you want to keep taking it, you can keep taking it. It's not like you have to do what I did, have a pure experiment on yourself. You know, you can, you can, you can do the belt (laughs) method of let's let you know this might help that might help so I'll do both um so that yeah I mean so both of those things reaching scientists to say hey you know would this be worth more study and reaching other people dealing with this to say you know some of you might want to try it and and you know (laughs) you know I have a book that they read if they want to know my story but they don't actually have to read the book to know you know (laughs) I can tell them in one sentence as far as like what the prescription was. They don't have to, they don't have to spend a penny for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that's, I love that. Uh, So, but I, yeah, I love that you said that it won't hurt you to just try it, you know, and again, you're right. It won't interfere with any medications. And so I would encourage everyone out there, if you're struggling with MS or really any autoimmune or what we consider to be an inflammatory illness, which is almost all of them, is just see and start experimenting. Like maybe a li- like you did, eliminate one thing. See if you feel better. That's what I did too. I started with gluten because of my GI stuff. And that was just sort of, to me, the front of mind. And what I'd been reading, it seemed like the most logical thing to try first. Mm-hmm. And I felt better after 30 days of not doing that. And then I, you know, then I eliminated dairy and I kept going with the, with the gluten-free lifestyle. And so, and then things just got better, but you know, there could, there's, you know, eggs can be inflammatory to some systems. Soy can be inflammatory to some systems. So there's a lot of things out there that can be considered inflammatory that might be triggering Mm-hmm. to the system and to a variety of these autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. So I encourage all of you that, to just try it. Again, you don't have anything to lose. It's not going to hurt you to eliminate something like that, even for a little while. If you don't notice a difference, then you can go back to enjoying it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess technically, even if you do notice a difference, you can go back to enjoying it if that's your choice. But <laughs> But the idea is, I think, is to be open-minded, to keep asking questions like we've said before, and to have that open dialogue with your practitioners. And to, again, like you said, don't let them have power over you to make decisions for you, but, you know, allow them to be there as a resource for information and options. And then you get to decide for yourself what fits best 
in your lifestyle, with your family, career, all all the things. So, well, thank you so much for coming on today. This was really fascinating discussion. Um, your book is fantastic. I even though it seems like it might be a little scientific, it's really not at all for everyone out there. It's a really great read. Um, so, and it's on Amazon. Yeah, it's on it. You can get it at a bookstore too. Either one, Amazon. Or just at an ordinary, you know, if you have a local bookstore, you can get it there. I mean, they might have yeah. to order. They might have to order it, but you know, but they can get yeah. it. Just, it's yeah. distributed through everywhere, anywhere you oh, can get. Cool. It. Yeah. Yes, let's support our local bookstores for sure. Yeah. I love our local bookstore sure. okay, here. <laughs> one, one plug here. <laughs> I know you're not doing videos. So. Yeah, for those of you that are listening, she just uh, popped up and showed the book. <laughs> but for those of you. Um, so you can find it on Amazon. Again, it's called Tracking, I'm sorry. Tracking a Shadow. Tracking, tracking a Shadow. I, yes. I was leaving out the article there. <laughs> tracking a Shadow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you're Edith Forbes. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank and, you so much for having me. This has yeah, been, this I'm very interested. Although I, now I have lots of questions I want to ask you, but I guess I'm too late. Oh, no, we still have a little time if you want to ask more questions. Go for it. Well, I wanted to know about the rest of your, one, two things, the rest of your diet, and also you referred to it helping some condition, and I didn't know what that was. I didn't recognize it. You referred to it by initials, and I didn't, you said there was some. Oh, IBS, uh, inflammatory bowel syndrome. Oh, okay, yes, of course. Yeah, which is now they've reclassified. So when I was first diagnosed in the early 2000s, um, it was just considered a chronic inflammation problem, but now they've reclassified it as an autoimmune uh -huh. disorder, which I think is really fascinating because I never thought of myself as, you know, I don't know. There's, it's interesting uh, to think about the concept of autoimmune to me. I don't know if it is to you or if you've thought about this. But, no, I'm not fascinated by it. I, yeah. Yeah, to think about like, though, there's something in my system that's attacking my own immune system. Like there's something about my system that wants to, you know, sort of go on high alert, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So um, so anyway, so yeah, IBS is mm -hmm. what I've been healing from. And my story is that I was diagnosed very early on. I was 23 mm -hmm. and I chose to ignore it. The doctor gave me uh, the choice to take a pill, which at the time didn't really, um, I was not a pharmacist then. I was just working in a greenhouse and I was a pharmacy technician. So I was aware of the drug, but uh, it didn't really have any fantastic research behind it or outcomes. So I was like, no. But then he also gave me a tool of aloe vera juice. Mm -hmm. And which at the time, I, I really appreciate that he did have some sort of food and lifestyle approach to mm -hmm. offer mm -hmm. and he also uh, you know very much encouraged me to get my stress under control because at that time I was a very stressful person I didn't have a lot of coping mechanisms mm -hmm. uh, I definitely wasn't meditating back then so <laughs> or doing much yoga I think most of what I was doing was power yoga you know to uh -huh. be fit and in shape <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I then for the rest of it, I like you, I just ate everything because mm -hmm. I didn't see, I didn't understand a lot, even though I was a um, biology, biology undergrad, that's what my mm -hmm. undergrad degree is, is biology, um, we didn't really talk a lot about food correlations with the mm -hmm. human body at all. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so, and that's something that I wanted to sort of bring forward too, is that we don't really think about farmers as being scientists, like that first thing that in our heads, but I will agree with you that I think farmers are probably the original ecologists, uh-huh. you know, because they're in the environment every day with their plants and their animals, depending on what they're farming and raising and breeding and they see it firsthand and when there's an issue that comes up they're the ones that come up with the solution and they have to take into account all these variables but like you said only focus on one thing to figure out if that's the thing that's going to help or yep. you know fix the problem yeah and yeah so of course absolutely <laughs> i love it i'm from east tennessee so i grew up around a lot of farms and farmers yeah. and so I really appreciate a lot of what, especially small and local farms, they do for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really powerful. And I think now more than ever, we're seeing a resurgence of these smaller farms to really help bring more good, healthy food to the community, both uh, plant and animal. Yeah, well, I hope so. I keep, <laughs> I can't, sometimes it feels like an uphill battle. That's a whole other topic, <laughs> you know. It is. Uh, we sort of like, talk about the weeds. But <laughs> where our food comes from, we could, you, could do, you could do a whole number, another program with somebody about that. Yes, um, yes. yes. <laughs> but it is something that I also encourage my clients and all the listeners out there that if you have the opportunity to buy locally sourced food, whether it's plant yeah. or animal, definitely do it because, it's really important to know where your food comes from, to know that it's being raised in a healthy, humane way, and it adds back to your own health, your own microbiome, um, because your outside environment is a key part of what makes up your inside environment, too. And that's something that, as scientists, we're learning more and more about. But I think ancestrally, we've known that for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, and people, yeah, people that are maybe a little, yeah, some groups that are closer to the land or to wildlife or whatever, maybe just kind of instinctively have more of a grasp of this, but yeah, yeah, cool. Again, Eda, thank you so much. It was so pleasant to have you, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, and yeah, thank you, thank you very much. So, okay, everybody, uh, go out and get Edith's book. It's, uh, again, like I said, a really pleasant and enjoyable read, and it's on Amazon. It's called Tracking a Shadow, and um, if there's anything on my website that can offer you as a resource, it's drlaramay.com, and I have plenty of dairy-free and gluten-free options on there in terms of recipes, blogs, uh, evidence, and research to support all of these approaches that we've talked about. So uh, we will see you in two weeks. Uh, Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Hear all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the show.